how do we also make space to acknowledge the shame that we are carrying because of the cultural burdens, because of the familial legacy burdens, because of the historical trauma, because of the present day systems that continue to perpetuate racism and oppression? Like this instills more and more shame in people. And so how do we talk about this and how do we see it within ourselves and be that that's going to require vulnerability? We need to do this if we are to really begin to heal individually and as a whole. For me, there is no way forward if we're not doing that. I learned early on it was not okay to show or talk about my pain. I still vividly remember sitting in a dark classroom. I think I was in fourth or fifth grade. I had just returned from a family therapy session that was scheduled during the school day. So I, when I returned to school, my classmates were still at lunch and the office staff told me to wait in the classroom for everyone to return. And isn't it interesting how you, like what you recall from that time? And I remember wearing a very 70s style denims jacket and looking around the empty classroom with the lights dimmed while processing all I heard my family share about their wounding and substance abuse and pain. Now, to be honest, major fail on the therapist who had my sister and I sit in this session. We heard things that were too big for our hearts and minds at the time. But to be honest, we'd already seen and heard things that were not meant for kids. And I was already used to the whiplash of navigating things in my home and then transitioning back into the world for school and softball and flute lessons. And as I sat there in the dimly lit classroom alone with my feelings and thoughts, preparing for my classmates to come back and ask the expected questions of where I'd been, I felt this part of me shut down all I was feeling. There was this inner knowing that it would not be okay to show the tears I was fighting back or talk about the things I heard in our family session. This part of me knew I needed to store them away and my protectors diligently showed up to do their job to keep me safe. <laughs> my heart feels heavy just reflecting on this and knowing at such a young age, I learned messy and complicated were not okay to share or show. Fast forward to when I was living on my own and working and generally adulting, and this belief about hiding my pain continued with force. My pain hid behind work and relationships and hypervigilance. I saw it all around me too. My friends and colleagues all seemed to operate on the same premise to hide your pain and keep the messy eggs out away for fear of being misunderstood or labeled as too much. And even today where therapy and mental health conversations have become cultural norms, I still see the pains we carry weighing us down and burning us out. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with humans who navigate life's challenges and lead in their own ways. Our goal is to learn how they address the burdens they carry, how they heal from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. We all carry pain, all of us. We navigate the vice grip of the pains from our past along with the pains from the present while just trying to keep it all together. 
I see in myself and others how we refine our skills to mask and protect the world from seeing what's really going on in our hearts. And as a result, we believe and also perpetuate the message, it's not okay to struggle. And for many who don't hold the many privileges I do, the stakes are even higher to keep it all together. The pressure to suppress our struggles and our fear robs us of our vitality and our authenticity. We hold our breath under the expectations to figure out and fix our pain so we get through until something breaks, impacting our relationships and our health. And when things break, we often carry the blame and responsibility of our pain because we've absorbed all the messages our struggles are solely our responsibility, neglecting to see the systems, the business practices, and the cultural norms that weigh us down too. So as a result, the desire to control our emotions and our environment runs deep. And our protectors are often on high alert, editing our words, our tones, and how we express our emotions, especially the difficult ones. We end up causing ourselves more pain by not acknowledging the pain we're trying to cover up. Many of the spaces we live, work, go to school, and worship also add to our hurt by continuing to pathologize it. The unrealistic expectations of leaders to come across unaffected and unbothered only furthers disconnection and toxic culture. So when we say we welcome the hard and the messy, but in fact do not have the capacity to witness the pain of others while holding our own discomfort, we add to the pain people carry. And when we seek to control both our inner world and our external world as a means to create safety, we end up having the opposite effect. To counter these toxic messages and systems, we need to do our own work. But note, our inner work is pre-game, not end-game. Creating change internally is hard, and creating change externally is equally, if not more, challenging. Our inner work becomes the foundation for the capacity to make the changes in the spaces we live and work. And I can't imagine much sustained change happening without making the commitment to do the inner work so we can create room for people to be fully engaged without constantly editing and filtering. And when it comes to talking about the pain we carry, I could not think of a better person to have a conversation with on this topic than Natalie Gutierrez, author of her new book and aptly titled The Pain We Carry. Natalie is a Puerto Rican psychotherapist, author, speaker, who grew up in the native Lodapi land known as New York City. Much of her work is dedicated to providing trauma-informed psychotherapy to Black, Indigenous, and other people of color and mixed race. She works with adult individuals struggling with complex PTSD and is a proud mother of two and a growing equestrian. Natalie speaks with power, love, and conviction, and anyone who has a chance to listen and learn from her is better for it. I can speak to that personally. Listen for the cost, Natalie noted, in the constant drive for acceptance and assimilation. Pay attention to the trailheads in Natalie's story that brought to surface the pain Natalie was carrying. And notice Natalie's reflections on the power of sharing in community our grief, our shame, and our rage. Now, this show has a content warning as childhood abuse, neglect, racism, and traumas are discussed. Listen with care. 
And if listening is too much for your system, don't push through. Honor the messages your body is sending and respect the need to pause if that's what's needed. All right. Now, please welcome Natalie Gutierrez to the Unburdened Leader podcast. Natalie, welcome. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. It is an honor to be here. Thank you for asking me to come. I appreciate it. it. It's an honor. We've got a lot to cover and I am really excited to dig in. I, I want to start like we do in typical unburdened leader fashion, digging deep. <laughs> and I'd love for you to take me back to when you were in school and you got in trouble for daydreaming and not focusing. Mm. And I'm curious, what was happening with you at the time? And how did your teacher's responses to your daydreaming impact you? Yeah. Um, I, re- I really remember, I mean, it's like, it feels like yesterday. It's funny how these, I don't want to say funny, it's very um, interesting and makes sense how these things just impact you sometimes and you remember them. So it, pretty much on the surface. Um, I was seven, I was seven years old and in second grade and I had, you know, this teacher had just joined or had been accepted to what used to be called the gifted and talented program at my school and you know when you're there you're supposed to be having like top-notch grades right otherwise you get removed from the gifted and talented program and you go into like you know just the uh, the the general classes and so you know I did my work when it came to subjects like math and things like that but uh, during art, I just didn't want to do it. I just, mm. I didn't want to do it. And, and I started not wanting to just do any of the things that my second grade teacher wanted me to do. And I just got this sense. I remember, so, I, you know, you energetically feel people. And I just, from seven, had this energetic sense, this person is not fully safe. Like this person's not a fully safe person. And, you know, I just remember her, the teacher, oh, I, I, maybe it was like a daily occurrence, but like the teacher was just, you know, telling my mom, yeah, she's not paying attention. She's daydreaming. She, and I was a really good student, but I just, in her class for, I just, I was daydreaming. And, you know, she just went automatically to pathologize. Like she's not, she doesn't want to pay attention. She doesn't want to do this work, but you know, she didn't really ask why, like she didn't really Mm. sit down with my mom and say, you know, what's happening at home or, you know, do you know of anything that's happening for her? Because she is just really not present. She didn't ask those questions. Instead, what she did was just tell my mom that I wasn't listening. And so, you know, that that in my home back then got really major consequences because my second grade teacher wasn't coming home with me in the evening after getting those complaints. And so, you know, I got in major trouble at home. And, you know, unfortunately, my parents parented me from a wounded place and so you know I was hit a lot because of that and yeah I just 
I just wish that she would have asked. I wish the second grade teacher would have really just been curious. We talk about curiosity, right? Being one of the C's in self-energy. I wish she would have been curious about what was happening for me in the home. Um, you know, at seven years old, when a kid is checking out, it's not just because, well, one, it could it could be several things, but like when a kid is checking out at seven and when, you know, when when that's not in my history and that's not the kind of student I was really I wish you would have checked in hmm. you know I've, I've known you for a few years now and it's interesting because what I know of you is to be someone like you're doing a lot you know working we've been a part of several IFS trainings together writing this book that we're going to be talking about um, daydreaming is not something that <laughs> I even know if you have the space for it. You've got two littles at home. <laughs> um, yeah. And so I'm curious what kind of impact, like your work ethic, you know, at least from an American capitalist grind perspective is is spot on. Yeah. <laughs> and right. so um, I'm just curious about the echoes of that time and how that's impacted how you show up in your work. You know, and hearing you say that, it absolutely has, because I think it was from that point on so like, you know, the teacher was saying, you're going to get kicked out of the gifted and talented program if, you know, if you, because you have to score back then. I, I don't know if they still have it, the citywide test and you have to score a certain amount. And the teacher was telling my mom, she's going to, she's not going to go into the third grade gifted and talented. We're just going to remove her. And um, at home, I learned, you know, my mom was bought all of these phonics books and was like at home, um, you know, she would, she would hit me in order for me to read the phonics books. And so I learned from then if I want, I mean, I learned several things that you're saying, right, from a very capitalist kind of uh, place, perspective, and teaching is that I really had to pressure myself at all costs to study and to and to really learn. And that that was going to be how I survived this thing. So mm -hmm. I ended up, I went through that whole experience, right? And then took the citywide exam, got a 99%. <laughs> so, um, and the teacher, you know, said, okay, yeah, she stays in this program. But at what cost, right? At what cost did I have to stay in this program where you know, my mom was feeling like she was forced to have to take measures to get me to study so that I could stay in this program. Uh, and at this point, it's even bigger than the program. It's like what, you know, this white teacher is telling this mother about her brown child and the sense that the, the sense that we already feel behind right? The sense that there's already legacy burdens in my family around like we are behind. That all of this together is creating like this whole, just the violence, it's creating this pressure, it's creating this energy of like tension that, you know, I'm, I'm, that I've carried with me for much of my life because then it's always been about getting good grades, getting good grades, getting good grades, getting good grades. And I've, developed parts that are really, really good at executing that. Like I call them my Huffler parts. Um because 
because they really learn to hustle and like really be, you know, quote, better, whatever that means, whatever that means. Because it doesn't, you know, at the end of the day, like, it's like, what am I really chasing? Am I really chasing right. the A? Do I really think that that's, that's going to, you know, bring myself, what am I, what am I really chasing? What is this really about? What do you think you were really chasing? Because the A's were an end game. No. What was end game at the time? No. Um, and still. Acceptance. Mm -hmm. Acceptance. Acceptance. I think part of this is also like assimilation, right? If I, if I get the good grades, right, then I'll be accepted. And maybe there's like a chance that I, that, that people will approve of me, right? And then they'll like, I'll survive this thing, essentially. I'll survive this thing. They'll leave me alone. A lot of this was, I think, based on receiving the approval of others, particularly in the institution by the white bodies that govern them. So if this teacher got down on her knees when you were daydreaming right next to you and said, hey, Natalie, what's going on? Mm -hmm. What would you have told her if you felt safe to tell her what was going on with you when you were daydreaming and not focusing during those classes that you were not as engaged in? Yeah, I would have told her. I would have probably told her, my uncle is touching me. Um, and I hadn't told anybody at the time, so I... I was sitting with what that was for in, in, in the ways a seven-year-old knows how to make sense of it, right? Um, I would have told her that I was seeing violence in my house. I would have told her that I was feeling really sad. Hmm. Yeah, thanks for speaking for her right now. I'm glad we get to hear what she was going through. And this leads me to um, my next question in this amazing book that's coming out really soon, um, your new book, The Pain We Carry. Um, and this quote is, is a powerful follow-up where you write, we can find ourselves perpetuating the very systems of oppression and abuse in our own homes, within our own minds and bodies, families and communities taught to us by white supremacy. Tell me about a time when you found yourself perpetuating these systems of oppression in your own life. And what was the turning point for you? Immediately what comes up for me, and I'm sure there's more, but immediately what comes up for me is when I became a mom. When I became a mom. <laughs> because... Yeah. Uh, my first son, you know, he has darker skin. He lives in, in a in a more melanated body than I have. And so I immediately started, you know, I, I had some of like my seven-year-old, my, my inner seven-year-old, I want to say, introduced herself in a different way to me. Um, where it was, but it was that same feeling of like, we're behind. And so... You know, my son, he, he just reminded me so much of me from when, you know, he was little. And I remember the pressure 
that I was beginning to put on myself of like, I have to put him in this class and then I have to put him in this class. And then he has to going through babycenter.com or whatever that is and looking at like what, like he's trying to get, you're like, oh, you know, are they doing this? Are they doing that? Is my child doing this? Um, and seeing, fast forwarding to, he just completed the second grade. This was a hard year for me because this was the year that, you know, that I, that reminded me of my own little seven-year-old, me and her experience. And I definitely have seen myself put pressure on my son with like, are you reading a book? Did you read this book? And then, <laughs> like, like, you know, are you... We have, let's, let's, let's do your writing. Let's see how you're writing right now. Let's see. Um, let's look at your report card. Okay. Let's, you know, like I have seen the pressure that I have at times and I've had to really slow my role, but I've seen the pressure that I have put on my son a little. And how important it is to slow that down because I don't want to recreate that. And I, I, you know, I think I have a little, um, what feels very corrective for me though, is that he had an amazing second grade year and he, oh, he really liked his teacher. So I'm like, <sighs> you know, it didn't happen again, but I could see, I could see the pressure that, that if I'm really blended with these mm. parts that are afraid of, you know, being behind or, or, you know, afraid of falling behind, that it really can take over and, and wreak havoc. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I'm feeling that in my system. As I hear you talk to, there's something about parenting and, and if you're not a parent, caring for those that are of an age mm -hmm. when you've had a trauma or difficult life experience, it is wild how those anniversaries show up in those moments um, and continue to echo if we don't address them and ident identify them. And there's opportunities, like you said, for those corrective experiences. So healing. It's yeah. been so, almost like you feel the generational release. There's almost this, you know, when you see your little person move through something differently or you respond differently in a way that you needed um, and didn't get. So that's, that's powerful. Um, you know, a, a little bit on this note, we're often taught to judge our pain and our struggles, like literally as a moral flaw, like to, to have any kind of struggle, what's wrong with you. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and so often I, I see this, not just with our kids, but I see this in places of work. I see this in myself. I see this in culture that we go to great lengths to hide our pain and struggles in an, an effort to avoid being misunderstood and to protect our reputation and even our safety. Um, but you often say and write, your pain makes sense. You make sense. When did you realize that your pain made sense? So two things come to mind, actually. The first, you know, the first one is, of course, when you have children, right? Because that just brings you into all, like, you think you're healing, <laughs> right? <laughs> and you are. And then when you, when they, when kids come along, it's just like so much more unresolved stuff comes for you, just sheds a light of like, this still needs to be 
loved and witnessed within you, right? But even prior to that, I think, uh, uh, so like at the end of high school, my parents separated. Yeah, they separated, they divorced, but we 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 separated in a way that um, it wasn't amicable, I'll say, my mom and my dad, right? And so I went to live with my mom and we lived in the Bronx and my little brother at the time were like 12 years apart. And I was getting ready to go to college. So the first year, 17, turning 18 years old, going to college, I think it just all hit me. I think all of it just hit me and I just became majorly depressed. But I knew how to dissociate. So I got those good grades. (laughs) I got those good grades, but I kind of felt like, oh, like something is brewing, but I didn't know who to go to because therapy is like, who does that? Like, I didn't even know that was a thing. Mm-hmm. 17, 18 years old. But then when I transferred from the college I was going to, I became really depressed. And then I couldn't keep my grades up any longer. So I was getting X. I was getting B's. I was withdrawing from semesters. I was losing financial aid. Like I just, you know, I, I just couldn't anymore. Like at some point, those adaptations and those survival skills that that you use at some point, they just, they can't work anymore because that's coping, right? That's not healing. And so I just hit that brick wall or, you know, but I think that was like my, my rock bottom point. And I just remember getting like the refund checks from school and using them to like buy clothes because I thought that that was going to make me feel better, right? And I, but that wasn't helping. So then I saw um, that therapist in the university and it was around there, around that time where I was thinking like, okay, this isn't good. I'm in a bad place. (laughs) It was not good. It was a really hard time. And I was making a series of, you know, survival choices, right? And not so good relationships, very toxic relationships, found myself there. But toward the end of my school to the end of my college year, it it began to make sense. It began to make sense why I was carrying all that I was carrying because I had been estranged from my family for a little bit after the separation of my parents. Um, I was being blamed for the separation of my parents. I was holding just, Mm. um, you know, all the unresolved stuff around like the sexual abuse of my uncle. Uh, It was just hard. All of it was hard. But I also began to feel like I understood why I was having all of this pain. And that became a turning point for me, which eventually had me move to Hawaii to, <laughs> for, for my master's. I did my master's out there in Hawaii, but I just really wanted to pause and just get away from everyone. I really just wanted to journey by myself hmm. and just build anew. And that became like the turning point for me in my own healing with therapy and hmm. building healthy relationships and all of that. I just want to circle back to something you mentioned briefly. You said, I know I knew how to dissociate. And I just want to pause and um, unpack that a little bit, because especially with like, you know, 
Insta therapy stuff, terms are always talked about. Sometimes we pathologize things. We hear dissociation. We think, you know, is this severe mental illness or we judge it. But dissociation is a beautiful spectrum Mm -hmm. of ways that we protect. Right. And dissociating sometimes is comforting, Mm -hmm. you know, and sometimes there's things that are helpful to us and sometimes not, right? Right. Whether it's with food or sex or relationships or work. I don't know if you want to say anything about just the spectrum of dissociation for you, because I just wanted to name that. It's good for us to be aware of those protectors and even and befriend them. They we'd yeah, all be yeah. in straitjackets. We'd all be in straitjackets if we didn't have these parts of us. Um, and they often get a bad rap. So just love for your thoughts on that briefly. Yeah, you know i I've met with a lot of folks that you know have dissociated in similar ways that you know that I have. And for me, you know, along the lines of what you're saying, right? It's this protective piece that tries to really in service of our survival in service of just taking care of ourselves does whatever it needs to do to take us out in that moment right Mm -hmm. so when I think about my daydreaming back in the second grade yes you know I think about was that me trying to dissociate from the pain that I was trying to make sense of with all that I was seeing in my house and then also what was happening to, you know, my seven-year-old body. And plus the systemic oppression, systemic racism that, of course, I have no language or understanding of because I'm seven, but you feel it. There's impact there. There's impact there when, you know, you're living also in the projects and you don't have the money that other people have. And that I already kind of had a sense of. I knew that there were things that we couldn't buy and stuff like that. So you kind of carry all of this weight, mm-hmm. all of this, all of this burden or burden. And naturally there are gonna be parts of you that are wanna gonna that are gonna wanna say, let's time out, <laughs> right? Let's time out for a moment. Let's imagine we're riding unicorns, you know, let's imagine like because that feel, that is what my, at the time, I imagine my seven-year-old me wanted. That was what my seven-year-old me needed. It didn't needed. need to do the art thing that the teacher was, it, it needed a place to just feel. She needed a place to feel like she was safe. Mm. Right. And she didn't have that. She didn't have that. And so that makes sense that a part of me has then said, I have a safe place. Right. And trying to help me saying, I have a safe place. Come with me and let's journey here together. And that just makes so much sense. So I'm just really appreciative of my dissociative parts and also of other people's dissociative parts that just work so hard to give us the safety mm-hmm. that maybe we don't have a sense of in our external environments, right? Within our mm-hmm. families, within our friends. Absolutely. It, it is amazing how, the, whether it's you know childhood to school to even work, when we in, in such a productivity grind culture that we're in, if we're hard on ourselves or hard on those that you know we're leading or supervising, they're not focusing or they're not producing. And instead of saying, mm-hmm. hey, what's going on? Or what do you need? And plus, we're not even taking into account different ways of learning and neurodivergence, <laughs> different ways of experiencing the world. There right. is not one way to be. And so these parts of us that work so hard just to help us get through the day, um, it's good for us to start getting curious about them, not just in ourselves, 
but in others. So thank you for sharing that. All right. I want to switch. I want to talk about rage, Natalie. Let's talk about mm-hmm. rage. Um, I want to, let's talk about, it. I want to hear, you know, <laughs> what your relationship with it is today and especially how it's evolved mm-hmm. over time and mm-hmm. how you've responded to it and also what's helped you befriend it. Cause man, I mean, you and I both identify as women <laughs> and there's a lot just, just in that little social location piece around rage. And there's a lot more too, depending on uh, what kind of body you show up in with rage. Right. So yeah, I'd love, love to hear about your relationship with rage today and how, how it's evolved. Yeah. I have to say, Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I want to be careful how about, about how I, speak for my rage because I understand now how sacred it was and is. Mm. Uh, but at the time, I would say the world would say that I was a ticking time bomb, mm. right? That I was just very explosive um, as a teenager because at this point, I just was holding so much. Like you hold so much, it almost feels like you reach the fork in the road where you implode or explode, and I think I did a little bit of both, mm. but I more exploded at some point. And when I began to say really mean things to other people, when I began to, I mean, actually there was a, there was a time where I took pride in that. There was a time that I was taking pride in my, explo- in my explosions because they were keeping me safe. Mm. They were keeping people away from me and they were helping guard me from my own vulnerability, right? They were protecting me from my own, from me feeling my own vulnerability and also being vulnerable to other people. So no one could hurt me at this point if I was, you know, in my rage, right? Yes. And then there was also a part of me that began to feel lonely, you know, a little empty. And there's, you know, some definitely sadness and grief around just what I was losing and what I had already lost, Right. And I'm not even talking about like in my life, I'm talking about with the people that have came along before me. I'm talking about what my ancestors lost, that this rage has been passed down throughout the generations. And also I've learned how it's been, how anger has been expressed, you know, through violence. So naturally I began to do those things. And then I want to say like in moving to Hawaii, that really shifted a lot for me. <laughs> um that was really a changing point for me that also invited me to slow down and learn about what I was carrying inside and I want to say then it began to make sense why my rage was there hmm. and all that she was trying to do to protect me and to also be my voice because she hmm. didn't want me to be exploited anymore right she didn't want me to be abused anymore she didn't want me to be silenced anymore she was like enough right she was like this dragon spewing fire like she's yeah she is just this really powerful being and you know i i talk about my rage in two pieces one being ancestral rage the ancestral rage that i carry within about what was taken and what was lost and then there is the personal rage, the rage that has happened in my lifetime, right? That 
that has happened to me. And they, they hold hands. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they, they hold hands, these two, because they understand one another and one leads into the other. They're really connected. Mm-hmm. So I've learned in that when you, when you name the befriending, I've really learned in my own therapy to really see them for who they are, which is really birthed from love, quite frankly, because this rage exists to protect the things that I love, mm. protect me, protect my people, right? Protect my ancestors, help give a voice to all of it. And it stems from love. If I didn't love it, I wouldn't have that rage to protect it. It's a righteous rage. Right. It, and we live in work and navigate in spaces where we are told explicitly and implicitly to tone down. And it may not even be full on regimen, just our, our anger, our passion, mm-hmm. our intensity, mm-hmm. our mm-hmm. truth. Mm-hmm. How do you navigate those messages to tone down um, in the many spaces so, that you hold? Yeah, <laughs> that that alone has also been a journey. I think uh, I've definitely developed, you know, the the part that tone polices to really make sure because I mean I've been called the I've been called the feisty Latina. I've been called that like so much. Like they, I used to have a nickname you know, named Natalie. They used to call me Nastalie. And I, I'll have to say part of this was was a little true because I was less tactful. But also, part of this was also coming from parts of other people that were told policing me, right? Um, I, you know, even in IFS spaces, that when I speak about things like racism and oppression or anything related to BIPOC, that I say it with charge, that I say it with aggression. And I'm like, y'all, if you thought that was aggressive, that was like 10%. <laughs> that was like five or 10%. Of like, that was like straight up delivered from, uh, from, from me being a little blended with my tool policing part. Like if you actually really heard how I wanted to say this, I... You couldn't, you couldn't handle it. <laughs> Your fragility would not allow you to handle it. That, that is, you know, what that wants to say. And I also recognize the importance in communicating this rage from a place that will also, I want to say, invite people to receive the message. And sometimes mm-hmm. when people are afraid, you know, of this. And and a lot of this is also implicit bias, right? If I'm showing up and there's already implicit bias, you know, against, again, uh, a Latina, right? And any sort of like, any sort of umph in my voice becomes threatening, you're probably not going to receive my message. And there's absolutely nothing I can do about that, right? There's just absolutely nothing that I can do about that. Because that would, that would, the other thing that I could do, the only other thing I could do is to modulate how I speak and to code switch and to tone police. And I'm just not willing to do that anymore. But I want to say fairly recently, I told myself, I'm, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not even going to do that because that hurts me. 
Like it makes other people feel comfortable, right? But especially folks in dominant groups, right? Dominant racialized groups. But like for me, what that communicates to me is that I'm a perpetrator of violence, like that I'm innately a perpetrator of aggression. And I just won't do that anymore to myself. And I don't want other people to do that to themselves either. How do you feel like we can do a better job allowing this kind of grief rage dance and the spaces we work in instead of trying to mute it or instead of fearing it? How do we create that dance? Yeah. How do we do a better job allowing Mm. for Mm. this space when it's like you come into work or come into a training or you come home, wherever the spaces we are, go to school and we have just saw the news of of another shooting or hitting another horrible milestone with COVID deaths or something, a a major natural disaster. Like it's just, you know, it's, there's that, I just, I'm like, I'm rage griefing, grief raging (laughs) a lot. You know, and hearing your question, I mean, part of this for me is who is in your community to help you, right? How do Mm. we do this in community? How do we do this in community? How do we heal in community? Because a lot of when, when you hear about the shootings and the news, when you hear about all of just all of the loss, all of, all of the violence, there is a collective trauma that happens, especially more toward the people that it's happening to, right? So every time that you see another Black body being murdered, it is violence toward the Black community. Right. Same true for queer and trans. Right. It is violence toward this community. And so how do we come together in community and help support. And also be supported by our community. And I think a lot of this is also allowing ourselves to name that we are feeling this sadness because some of this and I'll speak for, you know, I can't speak for everyone in the Latina community, but. You know, I, I I know a lot of people in the Latina community, and I know that one of the the burdens that we carry is really not talking about sadness, really not talking about grief in really all of the ways that we need to. So I think a lot of this is also how do we allow ourselves to really see and hold our grief and how do we hold it together? And the same thing is true for our shame. You know, when I think about what what Ruth King said around shame and rage being connected, how do we really internally, and I I say this both like communally and also internally, individually, how do we also make space to acknowledge the shame that we are carrying because of the cultural burdens, because of the you know, the familial legacy burdens because of the historical trauma, because of the present day systems that continue to perpetuate racism and oppression, like this instills more and more shame in people. And so how do we talk about this and how do we see it within ourselves and be that that's going to require vulnerability. That's going to require a lot of hell of vulnerability, but we need to do this. If we are to really begin to heal individually and as a whole, Mm -hmm. for me, there is no way forward if we're not doing that. Amen. 
I have nothing to add to. I agree. And that requires a lot of work and individual mm-hmm. work. It requires the, the YOU turn to do our work so that we can, as Tony Herbine Bank says, we can return to those that we're serving, supporting, leading, caring for. And it's that dance, the U-turn, return <laughs> dance has to be in community with our own system and right. community with those around us. And if we're mm-hmm. not cultivating that within ourselves, it's sure as heck going to be hard to cultivate that outside of ourselves. Well, I'm just thinking just about the all parts are welcome, right? Like I get it. I get the that all parts are welcome. And I get that even like when I think about, you know, when it comes to racism, right? Like white folks really needing spaces to talk about just what it's like to really be on the receiving end of maybe more heat from people of color that are maybe, you know, wanting to hold them more accountable or calling up, right? Talk about calling out, but really calling up and saying rise, rise and saying rise, learn, um, help us. Like, I, I get there needs to be a space, right, for, like, the parts and people's systems that carry racism that have implicit bias to be verbalized. Mm-hmm. And then I think about, you know, of course, there's affinity spaces, right? Um, and I think that's definitely important. And mm. when I think about the old parts are welcome, the rub that I feel within me sometimes is, like, do we apply that so that in this, you know, like in, in, in trainings or in spaces where there's mixed folks, right? When we are all brought to, together, mm-hmm. is yeah. it okay for white people to name and talk about their racist parts? And how, and how does that impact people of color hearing it, right? Some folks might say it's important for them to talk about that. And some folks will say it burdens me, right? It's, a, mm-hmm. it's an added burden that you have to do the work in affinity. And that makes sense to me. And I know that not a lot of people are on the same page with that. So no, it's a rumble. But I go by Brene Brown in the gifts of imperfection. She I'm going to jumble up the order of how she said it here. Um, but this is kind of part of my mantra is, is this the right thing to t- is this the right person to talk about this thing at this time? I think is how she says it. But it's kind of like, checking out what I want to say, who do I want to say it to, and what's the timing. Mm-hmm. And I think that is part of my U-turn, because then it's my entitlement. Well, if you said all parts are welcome, then I get to do whatever I want, whenever I want. And I'm not looking yeah. at the system that's allowed me to do that right. for most of my life because of how I get to move through the world. And so um, there is that if there's entitlement, you owe me right. versus, man, I... I want to speak to these, I want to speak for these parts and I don't want to do harm in it. There's a sense of, yeah. I'm not going to do what I want regardless of the impact is not okay either. So yes, your parts are welcome. Right now, I don't have space to hold space for them, but they're important. And I think that's right. a nuance. And right. I think part of supremacy culture, right, is this power over, you know, the urgency and entitlement. When we start policing what's good enough, what's someone's telling me, what I'm experiencing versus help me understand. And I think when we start to tell other people what they're doing Mm -hmm. versus Mm -hmm. this is how I feel 
when you say or do or don't say or do. That's very different. But I I do think we can still say all parts are welcome, but is this the right person, the right time and the right topic? And I think that that's, I mean, that's boundaries, that's accountability, that's dignity to me. I don't know that lands, but that's my sense. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I hear that. And, you know, to add to that, I think also what feels important to me that I hold on to is that all parts are welcome in my system, right? Like mm. all of it is welcome in my system. I can witness it. My self energy can be with it, but not all of it needs to be expressed. Yes. All parts are welcome but all parts do not to be to be expressed right now to me. So I want to shift a little bit to to coping. You wrote um, in your book, coping is not healing. And I I just thought that's to this took, I paused at this one because so much where there's tactics and tricks and hacks that we're trying to help people cope. They're not healing. And I think we need to start naming that. Sometimes we need to cope to get to healing, right? There's a path or there's like, right, we're not going to do our healing 24 seven. That's exhausting and not realistic. Um, and you continue to write your coping mechanisms are meant to be temporary and help you tolerate stress. And that's a horrible marketing plan for a little course or a program that's being sold. And you say they won't heal you only your higher self, your soul connected to the collective soul of your community can help you heal. And so, so many of us right now really are though just coping and may not see another way of doing life. You've talked about how you've been there too. Um, yeah. I'm still there. You're I still there. Arrived. Yeah, no, you know, I'm still <laughs> healing. <laughs> I still cope, right? I still cope and not knocking my coping mechanism, <laughs> not knocking uh, my protective heart not knocking my protectors, not knocking any of that, right? That's important. And they're band-aid. How do we heal the infection? Hello. We need healing remedies. We need healing remedies. We need medicine, whatever that looks like, right? Mm. Um, We're the medicine. We are the source. We are the medicine, both individually and as a collective. So I'm sitting with this and I'm thinking, how do I cultivate spaces that are medicine within mm-hmm. myself and others? And, and I, I mean, it's bringing tears to my eyes because I'm like, wow, we get to be the remedy. Mm-hmm. We get to be the remedy in our, and be contributing to the rem- remedy in someone else, regardless of the spaces, our roles, everywhere, walking down the street, <laughs> the grocery store, you know, in IFS trainings, in our therapy sessions, in our businesses, in our schools. This is the call. Wow. I really believe that. I really believe that we can really, if the more honest that we can be within ourselves about where we're hurting and where that pain lives within us, the more that we can see, be in relationship with it, right? Release what needs to be released and help each other do it. I just feel Mm -hmm. like I want to live in that world. I like, I want to, I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of the medicine. I want to be a part of the medicine. Yeah. That gives me hope. That feels empowering. And I love how our IFS practice is such a beautiful thread for that, a catalyst for that. I'm wondering if, if you're okay reading something from your book as we wrap up uh, this conversation. Um, Yes, yes, yes. 
All right. And then I've, after you read that, I just have a couple of follow-up questions. Okay. So here go. <laughs> We're taught from very early ages to lack of representation, restricted access, and being told we're not welcome to not take up space. Our needs, feelings, and presence don't matter. And when we feel like we don't matter, we feel vulnerable and write ourselves off in one way or another. We might dismiss our own needs and internalize the cultural burden placed on us that says we just don't matter. And that message continues to have ripple effects on the generations that come after us, becoming legacy burdens. Mm. Thank you for reading that excerpt from your upcoming book, The Pain We Carry. And I suspect many people listening right now to read these words will feel them deeply in some way. It'll hit some part of their story in their life. And I'd love for you to share what were the stakes for you to start to take up more space and stop writing yourself off. Mm-hmm. I read something bar by Mark Nepo or Nepo, Nepo Mark Nepo, I'll say, I'll always hold this within me. We're always going to have conflict. We're mm-hmm. just always going to be in conflict, right? Now, if we silence ourselves, if we don't speak up about what's happening internally for us, right? If we don't speak up for what is our truth, if we don't speak up for our needs, then we're not going to have conflict on the outside world. We're totally going to avoid it. Except the conflict then is internal. The resentment is then internal. And and that whole conflict of 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 holding within and holding that internal conflict within and, and, and beginning to hate myself for being silenced is just not worth it. It's not worth that pain, that, that holding, that being silent and just watching the world continue on, carry on, and me just shrinking myself, me shrinking myself in service of the world around me perpetuating the ism, right? Perpetuating all of that. And so in that, in that quote, Mark also says, the other option essentially is to have conflict in the external world and you don't dismiss yourself and you don't become invisible. So it's, do I want to be visible or do I want to be invisible? Do I want the conflict to exist externally or do I want it to exist internally? And for me, I have to choose. I have to let the conflict exist externally if I want to love myself. If I want to really be that medicine that I want to be, right? If I really want to do that, it has to happen where I can feel good about myself when I fall asleep at night at the end of the day, because I've made the choices to not remain silent and not to shrink myself and not to be invisible. I've made the choice to be visible, even if I'm not liked by everybody. I've made the choice to be visible and speak up for other people. I've made that choice, whatever the repercussions are, I've made the choice that I don't have to live with self-hate. I can live with self-love and I can live being proud of myself for it. That was the the turning point for me. Yes. And I'm just doing everything I can right now to stay sitting in my chair because that's what I'm like, yes, yes. 
Natalie, we have so much more to talk about. Will you come back to continue this conversation? Absolutely. Because <laughs> we've got so much more to talk about from your amazing book. This has been Thank incredible. You. Thank you for your time. I'm so excited to continue this conversation. So grateful this book is going to be out in the world soon. I encourage everybody, if you haven't pre-ordered it yet, they matter to yes, authors. So do share this. And this book is for everybody. Mm-hmm. This book is for everybody. Mm-hmm. I want to just reinforce that. It's like sitting down and Natalie, you're having a conversation with Natalie. And it, either you feel like Natalie's talking to you or you get to witness some beautiful conversations that you've been privileged um, to be in the space for. So Natalie, thank you for showing up today. Thank you for who you are and how you lead. Thank you for this book. And I'm so excited to have you back to continue our conversation. Back at you, Rebecca. Thank you so much. Traumas of all kinds continue to break down community and add to the pain we carry. In order to survive, we suppress our emotions and disconnect from the pain in our stories. Natalie beautifully reminded us that to really heal and create change, doing our own work is the foundation to cultivating spaces that give room to allow for our collective grief, collective rage, and collective shame. She also reminded us that when we silence our pain, we end up hurting others in addition to ourselves. So I want to ask you, are you clear on the pain that you're carrying and how it impacts you and those around you? How do you cultivate spaces that are healing? And how do you make room for showing up fully human with dignity and difference? Natalie challenged us all to be the medicine in our lives and in the spaces we're in by doing the work to heal our pain so we stop perpetuating the pain. And this is the work of an unburdened leader. Leading is hard. Leading is also often controversial as you navigate staying aligned to your values, your mission, and your boundaries. Navigating the inevitable controversy can challenge your confidence, clarity, and calm. And I know you don't mind making the hard decisions, but sometimes the stake seems higher and can bring up echoes of old doubts and insecurities during times when you need to feel rock solid on your plan and action. Finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex and polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small. Now, leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is so unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that is actionable and aligned. So when the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you want to navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead, when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then Unburdened Leader Coaching is for you and where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than the status quo. 
To start your unburdened leader coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you. Thank you so much for joining this episode of the Unburdened Leader. You can sign up for the weekly Unburdened Leader email, find this episode, show notes, and free Unburdened Leader resources, along with ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com.